my name's Will, and I'm standing in this morning to preach, and you guys are all far away. <laughs> Boris mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> but there's more, there's more, there is more, there is more. This morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 16, uh, verses 19 to 31. We're following the lectionary these days. And last week, Eduardo gave a great sermonette on short notice. Um, on the parable that precedes this, the, the parable of the shrewd manager. Um, and today, uh, we're in a parable that kind of keeps following on some of the themes that Jesus introduced in that first story. It's uh, Luke 16, 19 to 31. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there, longing for, for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died. <coughs> and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went to the place of the dead. There in torment he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted, and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. And the rich man replied, No, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Mm. I can't remember a specific story um, that goes with this, but I know that for most of my life, I've avoided this parable. <laughs> <laughs> Until today. Until today, when it was in the lectionary and I was given it. So. <laughs> Which is good. It's just really good. God's word is holy, trustworthy, and true, and we need Amen. to take every yeah. single part of it. And take it seriously. But what's interesting is what troubled me about this parable is that I remember it being preached in a way that the focus of the parable was on the judgment. Mm. And so the picture was of this chasm, almost like this, right? Like, you guys can't go over there, and you guys can't go over there, right? I won't say which one is on which side. <laughs> <laughs> but it also focused on kind of that idea of, like, you know, one day there will be judgment and there will be an, uh, an inability for you to cross over from one side to the other. And whether that's true or not, right, in terms of the rest of the witness of Scripture, it's actually a great adventure in missing the point. Because in preparing this, what struck me is, I don't think I can recall in those days 
that I was ever troubled by the money that was in my wallet or by my lifestyle that I lived on a day-by-day basis or by the poor that surrounded me. And that's actually what Jesus is really driving at in this. Eduardo preached on the parable of the shrewd manager and in that parable, the context in which this parable Luke purposefully puts in the narrative that he outlines for Jesus, um, that parable was about using money in a way, right, wisely, and in a way that what? Gets you an eternal reward, right? And interestingly, Jesus said, um, being faithful in the small things, right, will let you be faithful in the bigger things. And what he actually ends up inferring in that parable is great wealth in this life is a small thing. It's actually compared to what's coming. It's small. It should not be grasped onto. And that's why later he says money, right? You can't serve both God and money. Like they just don't go together if you're looking at it in the same way. And in some ways he's hinting at that chasm that he's going to get at in this parable, in that first parable. And so the context is looking at what does it look like then to be wise with what God entrusts to us. And so, in the middle of these two parables, there's a phrase that says, and the Pharisees loved their riches. (laughs) They loved their wealth. And so, in some ways, this parable might be addressed at those that were in the audience who were that way, but I think he's throwing it out more broadly than that. But it is about the dangers of riches. One commentator says, this parable is a warning to the rich and emphasizes the importance of what humans do in the present, and that we will be judged for the way we live now with serious consequences. So in a lot of ways, Jesus is using the imagery of the afterlife, the place of the dead, and fire, and Abraham's bosom, and all these metaphors to draw the point really hard home for those that are listening. But the the imagery is not the point of the parable. And so what are the things that stand out in this in terms of what is the warning that Jesus gives. I'm going to highlight two things this morning. The first thing is that wealth blinds us to the humanity of others. Wealth blinds us to the humanity of others. Interestingly, Jesus uses the the, uh, imagery of a rich man with a gate on his home, right? And at that gate, outside of the gate, not inside, but outside of the gate is where Lazarus is sitting on a day-by-day basis with sores. He might smell. It's unlikely he looks good. He's easily the kind of person that if you saw on the side of the street, you'd look away. And yet uh, the rich man goes in and out of his house every day, every day, and doesn't do one thing for this person who's hurting and suffering and in need. The guy's longing for just a scrap from his table, and he doesn't get it. We're like that too, though, right? Um, Two things I notice in my own heart when it comes to the poor. Uh, One is I don't think I associate with that, right? So I think I'm not poor, right? And I think many of us in this country may identify with that. And yet, um, I am poor in terms of the way I deal with my own wealth. And I think that's one of the things Jesus is getting at is that uh, when we see how we relate to this, it actually 
evens out the field for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right? Yes. But when we think otherwise, it puts a barrier between us. We start looking at people based on status, mm-hmm. based on what they have, right? And we order our society around that. And so one of the things that happens is the poor become a problem rather than people, right? Just think of the news. Think of the issues in our country today, whether it's around race or justice or poverty or anything in the Supreme Court that's being determined. The poor often become a problem. Think of immigration, right? These are poor people without a lot trying to get into a country where they might have an opportunity. That's a problem, right? We, we label things more broadly that dehumanizes. It blinds us to the humanity of others. The other thing is, um, you know, whether you're in Portland or even here in Brunswick and you pass some of the folks who are in need on the corners, right? There's a narrative that goes through our head a lot of times. I know for me, it's like, well, who's behind that person? Is this one of those groups in Massachusetts that's oppressing these people? If I give to them, I'm like, right? We just, it's a problem, right? Mm-hmm. And it ends up, I think for me, this phrase that came up for me in preparing this that just haunts me is, I don't want to be bothered by a problem. And that's the sad thing, I think, that wealth does. It puts gates up between us. Notice how the more money we have, the more gates we have in our life? Amen. Like our house? What's that? More money, more problems. More money, more problems. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) You know, we have a house, we have doors, we have locks on those doors. That's a gate. Right? We go in the parking lot with our car, we lock our car, that's a gate. And the richer you get in this country, the more gates you have, right? Until you live in a gated community where you just keep the problems out, right? And you can live in your own comfort. Gates separate us. And I think Jesus used that image very purposefully in this parable. Notice the rich man, even in torment, right? Even in the, the afterlife, right? This is, I mean, Jesus, he has three interactions with Abraham. Right? Hey, think of this. Abraham, right? What's the first thing he says to Abraham when he's in torment? Mm. Have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to help me. He's ordering him around. Right? When you have wealth, you have power. And this guy, I think if the, for the people who were poor who were hearing this, I think this part of the story, they would have started to chuckle. Because they would have realized, yeah, this is exactly what happens, right? The, the, the rich have the power and they order things around for their benefit. And even in torment, this guy's clueless. He doesn't get it. He's ordering Abraham around, right? Send this guy over here and help me out, right? Abraham's like, oh, no, there's a, there's a chasm between you. Well, okay, well, then go to my house, right? Well, no, he has, they have the prophets. And then you see, he says, no, Father Abraham, right? He's like, again, he's just in this position where he's trying to... to Create the order for himself the way he wants it to be. And it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. But, again, he's dehumanizing Lazarus, for sure, but also Abraham. Abraham's becoming just his own means to an end. This is the guy that, like, started the whole thing with faith in God. But the other side of this is what Jesus does with Lazarus in his parable. You know, in all the parables Jesus told, right, usually it's a farmer, a sower, like a mm-hmm. guy going out to hunt. There's never a name. This is the only place where a person is named. His name is Lazarus, which in Hebrew is God helps. Isn't this cool? Mm-hmm. Jesus takes the poor man 
gives him a name in the parable, and where does he where does this poor man end up? At the bosom, literally, of Abraham, which is a, a picture of a banquet table, and he's just like John was with Jesus at the Last Supper, able to lean onto the breast of Abraham. It's the, the place of highest honor. So here's a guy who gets ignored day in and day out, is suffering tremendously. And in the end, he's exalted to the highest place you can imagine in a Jewish mindset of what the afterlife would be like. Jesus is humanizing what often we're tempted to not see as people or to not bother with. And he puts him in that place of highest honor. It highlights that the poor are our brothers and sisters, God's holy and beloved people of equal honor and deserving equal attention as the rich. So I'm a missionary, and um, so I've never made a ton of money, um, but just by the fact of living in this country, um, I work with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, a sister movement of, uh, or a chapter of a worldwide movement called the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. And we've been lately partnering with brothers and sisters in the Middle East. And um, we could raise in one student conference enough money to pay, just from students giving an offer, <coughs> to pay for almost half a year of ministry in their context. And so even though I'm, you know, I'm a missionary and I don't make, like, I make far more than the poor brothers and sisters that we have in, in the church around the world. Um, and yet, um, I live in a fairly, um, fairly wealthy part of our town in Wiscasset. We live right in the village, and we happen to buy a house um, that is where a lot of folks ended up retiring. And, um, and so, and now there's all these get-togethers of people, and we get constantly invited. There's like every month or so, there's get-togethers. So I like to go to them, but I don't like to go to them. And <laughs> I like to go to them because I like the people, but I don't like to go to them because I hate the conversations. So. Um, it'll often be around like what restaurant they just went to, oh, how this car isn't as good as this other car, and how much they're redoing on their house, and how bad the carpenters are, or mess this thing up, or, you know, it's conversations that I'd like to join, but I don't have a lot to contribute. <laughs> but what I noticed, though, is it's subtle, and I'm doing it there, too, which is I'm valuing people based on their wealth. Like, it just happens so naturally. We give different attention to different people based on how much they have. Think if, you know, President Biden walked in the room right now, or Elon Musk walked in this room right now. Like, would, would, like wouldn't we behave slightly differently suddenly, you know? Uh, Some of us wouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> Some of us would. Jesus wants to level that and say, we are all children yeah. of God. Amen. And we all deserve equal attention. Wealth blinds us to the humanity of others. Jesus is calling the hearers of this to see the poor and to see them as beloved sons and daughters of God that would deserve the, equal, the honored status of being in Abraham's bosom because God loves them that much. The second thing in this parable that I think is that wealth blinds us to the generosity of God. Wealth blinds us to the generosity of God. Part of what this rich man in this parable is failing 
to see is that God is behind his life, right? He's a self-made man in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what happens when you start to make money, whether it's out of your skills or whatever, like, you know, the narrative is, this is my money, right? That's the, that's the pronoun we use all the time. It's my wealth. Strikingly, for the rich man, as the, the parable progresses, even when it gets to the end, you see that even the resurrection from the dead, like, like this amazing miracle that seems absolutely impossible, would do nothing to move him or his family. Right? So in a way, wealth has made him kind of just an immovable rock in his own um, achievements, his own collection of his goods. There's no sense of responsibility that's coming with what he has. Why? Because it's his. Mm. A different way of seeing this is that every good and perfect gift comes from above, Amen. from the Father of Heavenly Lights, who delights in his children, right? Amen. That puts a radically different spin on wealth. So this story is not saying God hates wealth, mm -hmm. right? But rather it's what, what happens with that wealth when you have it, and clearly this guy missed the point. He failed to see the man at his gate. He failed to share his resources with somebody who was in need. He could have done that in many practical ways. Um, the idea here is to become uh, conduits or rivers rather than reservoirs, right? I think what Jesus is putting at is that if God gives you wealth, that's for you to bless, right? The whole point of Israel was God was blessing them so they might be a blessing to the whole world. In the same way, each individual, if God blesses you with wealth, be a blessing to others. This parable would be radically different if the rich man acted that way towards Lazarus. In fact, I think part of the chasm, part of the idea of this chasm that's separating the two isn't so much kind of about the afterlife and heaven and hell and, you know, can you get from one place? Like, that's not the issue that Jesus is addressing here. I think the chasm is all in the attitude of this rich man's heart. Mm -hmm. And the choices he made. Yeah, the choices he made actually separate him completely from Lazarus. He walked by every single day. What if he had given? Right? That would have brought him together. And in a sense, that chasm would have been erased. Mm. Or at least talked to him. Yeah, so even here, if he, if he responded differently, right? As he's in the place of the dead and he sees Lazarus, he knows his name. He sees Abraham. He knows who that is. What if he had humbled himself? And said, oh, I failed. Woe was me, right? But instead, he's just continuing on this way of like hoarding what he has and using it for himself rather than being a reservoir of what God has given and giving it out to others. Let it flow. What would it look like for us to be that way? I'm going to just honor uh, my own parents who aren't here today. Um, they were exposed to someone with COVID, so they're just playing it safe. Um, but if they were here, I'd say the same thing, which is they've just been remarkable witness to me of what it looks like to be a, a river of blessing. Um, whether it's money, whether it's uh, like career and you know what they've received in life, uh, the love that they've been given, even hardships that come in their way, they turn them around into blessings for other people. Um, I love my mom now. Her memory is slowly eroding, but one of the things she does, no matter where she goes and who she sees, she always says to them, may God bless you. And she's not just saying it as like a greeting. I mean, she literally means it 
And I mean, there are times there'll be people in tears because of just her blessing that mm. she gives to other people in that way. And they love to give uh, their wealth that God has given to them away. It gives them joy. Jesus said that um, you can't outgive the Father, right? If you give out of your bag of stuff, say you have a bag of weed, if you give that stuff away, God will fill it back up until it's overflowing. And that's the invitation here. When we see the poor around us, in our town, in our neighborhoods, in our own families maybe, could we live with greater freedom and adventure to be people that bless and give away? What would it look like for us as a congregation to do that? Interestingly, thinking about where we are as a church right now, you know, without a pastor, we're small. Even last week, I sensed as we were talking about it for the first time, there was a sense of anxiety and anguish even over where we are. Like, financially, can we survive as a church? We don't know the answers to these questions. And it could be so easy for us, I think, to make a decision out of fear mm -hmm. and finances mm -hmm. than out of a sense of God wants to bless and, and, be, and allow us to be a blessing in some way. Amen. And I wonder if we as a church going forward can think more that way. Mm -hmm. right? not, like, not like the rich man here, but rather like somebody that's willing to receive and give. And see where that takes us. It, who knows? It may take us to the same conclusion, but it would be a radically different way than out of fear or anxiety over money. How can we become rivers and not reservoirs with what God has given to us? I want to conclude with a story. I think I've probably told it a number of times. I don't have many illustrations, so I just read it. <laughs> um, but it just struck me at how it really relates to this. And it's when I was first um, in ministry, so I was initially raising my support. I had moved from Hawaii here to Maine, up in Waterville, and uh, one of the deans of admissions at Colby College, where I was working, um, uh, joined up with me. We got an apartment together. You know, he's paying like 80%. I'm only paying 20%. I have very little money to my name. And I went to Hannaford to get groceries for the week. And I'm coming out with my two bags, and I had 20 bucks in my pocket in cash. And I was pretty happy about having 20 bucks in my pocket. Yeah, buddy. I come out, and there's this couple with their child in the cart who's crying, and they're yelling at me. Not, not very loud, but clearly they're in an argument. And as I pass them by, I, it's, it's over money. So I think one had spent too much or something, I don't know. But they're fighting over money, and it's just, they clearly are in a bad spot. And I walk by, and I actually pray for them, and I turn the corner and start heading back up to my house when I just get the sense from God I turn around and give me that 20 bucks. I'm like, ah! <laughs> So I fight for a little while, you know, nobody can see me, it's on the side of him, you know. Oh, good. And uh, finally I'm like, okay. So I turn around, I go back, and they're still going at it. And I interrupt them and say, I know this is weird, but I, I couldn't help overhearing that you were fighting about money. But here, I don't know if this will help or not, but it's $20. The husband just looks down on the ground, the wife stops, and the husband looks at me and starts laughing. And he looks at his wife and says, I'm sorry. He says, you know what? This is stupid. Thank you. Keep your $20. We're going to be okay. Oh. I turn around. I walk around the corner. I'm like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> I got my 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? 
what struck me remembering that story is that their lives were changed. Mm. And there was no, there wasn't even a giving of money. It was just the intent to give the money, and it made a radical difference, a kingdom of God difference mm -hmm. in their life. Mm -hmm. And it, so it doesn't matter how much we have, doesn't matter how little we have. What if I lived that way every day with my family? What difference would that make? If I didn't hoard or keep? What if I lived that way with my neighbors? What difference would that make? What if my whole neighborhood lived that way with each other? What difference would that make? Imagine the little town was casted if that became a commitment of every neighbor. Wow. Half the things we fight about in our town meetings would go away. Amen. What if all of Maine lived that way? What if the United States and every politician and person in power and business owner and if, imagine the whole world, that's the kingdom of God, right? Money then becomes small, just like Jesus said in the first parable. The point that the illusion that Jesus is trying to get at at the heart of this is that we make money a God. Mm -hmm. We think it will provide for us, give to us, and we want to collect and get as much as we can for ourselves, and that's a trap. That's a trap that we're called not to fall into. Rather, if we actually connect with the poor, we'll find that our money is just a small thing that could be used to build a kingdom mentality and, and reality around us that could change the world. Mm -hmm. And that's what God wants to do. Yes. The bottom line is our riches could either be a source of independent, prideful, blinding self-service, or could become a conduit that would be like a thread as part of a tapestry that displays God's kingdom for all of eternity. Mm. Which will you choose? Let's pray. Amen. God help us. There are so many layers to this in the personal realm, but also even when we think about issues of justice in our own country. How can we as individuals and as a church, Lord, be the kind of people that live freely, live with faith in a way that can actually bless the poor in our neighborhood, in a physical and real way, but also more broadly in a kingdom way to develop that kind of culture that brings your kingdom and your goodness. Thank you that you cared about money to talk about it while you were here, Jesus, walking on earth. And I pray that we can heed your words and receive your word even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll take communion now together. And just invite us to kind of hold that heart with the Lord. One way we can come and take today is to realize that Jesus didn't hold on to his position of glory and power in heaven. He came down and humbled himself and became one of us. Philippians says to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so today, as we take his body and blood, um, let's remember the, the way that he modeled for us the kind of life that we can live and be grateful to the, the gift of life that he gives to us in him. And remember to go get your children. Yes. <laughs> um,